All right, well, we're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, and we are starting in chapter 19. For those of you who like to follow along in your Bibles and know where we're at, so we are beginning a new chapter today. And when I was a young believer, when I was about uh, 19 or so, I had met a guy in, in university uh, the year before who I became one of my closest friends and uh, a guy that I just really admired in a lot of ways. He wasn't just someone I enjoyed being around, but he was someone that I admired. And uh, just to be clear, that's not really him. Uh, this is some guy from a stock image. But it's the idea, you know, he was, a, he was a young guy, and one of the reasons why I really came to admire him is that he had overcome a lot of brokenness in his life. His parents were divorced, and it was kind of a weird, there was a lot of weird circumstances around that. His dad, who uh, left the family uh, with his mom, uh, kind of left them in a situation where his mom didn't have a, a lot of education, but she was left to try and raise three children, and so she did so the best she could, and uh, a lot of times that meant that he didn't have a lot of money when he was going to university, so he worked uh, while he was going to school, and sometimes he would take off a semester to, to work, so then he could come back and continue with school. And on top of that, he was a very strong believer in Christ. He had a dedicated heart to Christ. He had a dedicated body, mind, and soul. And I admired him. I admired him for his uh, strength of character. I admired him for his willingness to work, uh, you know, drop out of school to work in order to come back and, and reach the goals that he wanted to reach. And I just found him to be a guy that uh, there's just a lot of qualities I liked about him. But mixed in with this, there was kind of this endearing nativity. Because even though he was a, a good guy in, in every way, he was a good-looking guy, good guy morally, good guy with character, fun guy to be around, he had never had a girlfriend. Uh, because one of the things he was on top of everything else was incredibly shy when he was around women. And so all of a sudden, this guy that was, you know, this, this wonderful dude would just clam up and, and just try and disappear into the, the corner whenever there was women around because he was just uh, so shy about that. But then in one of my classes, I met this young woman, and she was a little older than us. And, and when I say a little older, she was probably about 24. Uh, and I mean, again, I was around 19. And this friend of mine, uh, I'm going to call Fred, I'm going to call her Sue, because I've never known a couple that was Fred and Sue in my life, so I figure that's fairly safe. So uh, everyone's Fred and Sue in my stories. But... Uh, she was older than us, but she was cute in kind of an odd sort of way. She was like, if you ever saw the show Friends, she was like Phoebe, except she wore Western-style clothing, you know? She was a little odd, uh, a little different, kind of saw the world a little bit quirky, but she was very sweet. And I ended up introducing my friend, I said his name was Fred, right? And uh, this woman, and man, they hit it off. It was, it was kind of cute to see. They would just went, just... Immediately, they were head over heels over each other. And it was like seeing this little flower bloom in the soul of my, of my friend because this was a side of him I'd never seen. I'd never seen him goofy and in love. I mean, he just smiles all the time. His walk had a little extra bounce. His chest was out a little bit more. And it was hilarious to see, but it was, uh, it was endearing too. I couldn't have wanted, I couldn't have felt better for him. And she had also this just deep contentment uh, in the relationship, she would often talk to me about it because I knew her before they knew each other. And, and uh, she would often tell me he was everything that she ever wanted but never thought that she could have. 
I remember after a while asking her, well, why, do you, why do you think you know, something you could never have? And then she reminded me about something she had told me, and she was very open about it early in our friendship, was that a few years earlier, she had been married for less than a year and then gotten divorced. And I really didn't give it much thought. You know, again, I was fairly new in my faith. I wasn't aware of how controversial the subject of divorce was and how big a deal it was in the conservative churches that I was a, a part of and I still identify with. And so I just listened to her story, and it was a sad story because she really didn't have the best self-esteem in the world, like a lot of women that they, they have a low self-esteem for whatever reason, even though they're lovely people. And she basically married the first guy that showed any interest in her at all. And she knew this was a mistake. She was, on her wedding day, she cried. And she didn't marry him because she had to. She wasn't pregnant or anything like that. She just agreed to marry him. And it was when she was there on the wedding day that she realized she didn't love him. And she didn't want to be there. But she felt like she had to go ahead with it anyway. You know, when, it, when she had the chance to say, do you take, she didn't say, I don't. You know, she did, because there's a lot of people there. And that year, she kind of realized she didn't know him very well. He abused her verbally, emotionally. He had poor hygiene. He would force himself on her, claiming it was his right. And in less than a year, she left, got divorced, went back to university to become a teacher. And that's when I met her. So one day I came back to my dorm room and, and my friend's dorm room was right next to mine and he walked in and he looked like someone had died. And, I, and he sat down and he just looked at me. I said, what's wrong? He says, Sue's been married and divorced. And I looked at him and I said, yeah, I know. And he kind of gave me this look of, of anger that was mixed with, you know, <laughs> A little bit of relief that he could talk to me about it, but you could tell he was angry that I had known this and I didn't say anything to him because it never really occurred to me to say anything to him. And over the years that we've known each other, he never has brought that up again. He just kind of chose to forgive me, but it sent him on this journey that for about a month he didn't talk to me very much because he was digging through the scriptures and reading book after book after book, trying to determine if in good conscience he could remain in relationship with Sue. And I remember watching him go through this, and, and I, his room was right next to mine, and our doors were often open in the, in the little dorm we were in, so we'd talk to each other, and I'd poke my head in, and he would just be, you know, have all these books open around him and, and didn't really want to talk very much. And I felt super guilty that somehow this was my fault because I had introduced them. And it was sad to see the kind of light go out of his eyes because he determined at the end of it that because Sue's husband had not committed adultery, then her divorce would not be honored by God. And that if he were to marry her, both he and Sue would be in an adulterous relationship in the eyes of God. And this adulterous relationship would have been entered into with the full knowledge of what it was, and so he said this would be a willful entrance into a lifestyle of sin. And therefore, he concluded they had no future, and the relationship ended. But no matter how logical my friend could be in his theological conclusions, his heart was shattered 
He was heartbroken, and I was heartbroken to watch my friend, this dear friend, be heartbroken. And I have to admit, at the time, I, I, I didn't want him to reach that conclusion. And I argued with him about it, but, you know, I didn't really know much. And as for Sue, she disagreed with his conclusions, but he was decided. And I remember seeing her on campus just kind of looking like someone had punched her in the face. All the, all the joy was gone. All the smile was gone. Eventually, we just kind of drifted apart. She just kind of drifted out of our life because he was my friend, and for her to know me meant knowing him, and for him, and it just it was too hard for her. So she just kind of drifted away. And for me, this was my first encounter as a believer with this devastatingly painful, often controversial, all-too-prevalent occurrence in the lives of Christians and non-Christians, and that is the issue of divorce. And the passage we're looking at today in Matthew 19 is the one which my friend struggled with the most. It's the one that he really wrestled with when it comes to this. And so let's just read through it, and then we're going to talk about where we're going with this today. So Matthew 19, verse 1 says this, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the region of Judea on the other side of the Jordan. Now he's starting to head to Jerusalem. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that in, at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not that way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it is given. For some are eunuchs because they are born that way, others are made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Now, there are a few passages in the Scripture that I have to admit to you that I sometimes kind of go to war with because there's probably three or four topics that if it were up to me, I would have a different opinion than what the Bible has. And I, and I have to admit that, that there, there are some things that I just have to submit to the Bible because there, there's places I've learned through my past that I'm not smarter than the Scripture, but there are some things that I would prefer it to be different. And this is one of them. Because I want to believe something that is clearly different than what Jesus is saying in this passage. I'm going to be straight up honest with you. If it were up to me, I would prefer people to be able to say, look, this is not working out. Why don't we just in gentleness and in, and in, good, uh, you know, in good conscience just go our own ways and restart, rebuild our lives and be done with this. But that's not what Jesus teaches and so what we're going to do today, we're going to look at what Jesus is saying in this passage, and we're going to go deep into just this passage 
And then next week, we're going to ask some questions to this passage. Because there's questions that, that this passage begs to be, have a person ask them, ask it. So I want you to be clear, because I know that some of you, many of you, have, all of us in some way have been touched by this topic. Either you've experienced it, or you're in the midst of experiencing it, or you've come from a, a, your parents are divorced, or you know people around you who are divorced. So we all have some experience with this passage. And after being a pastor for as many years as I have, I've unfortunately had to deal with this topic far more than I ever wanted to. So let's go into it to understand what Jesus is actually saying in this passage. Then to remind you, next week we're going to ask some questions to it. Okay? So you're not going to get all your answers at, uh, today, or you, and you're not going to get them all next week either, because this is one of these topics literally hundreds of books have been written on. Literally hundreds of books have been written on. Points of view, people smarter than me. So I'm going to dis try and distill down into you the things that, kind of the, kind of the essence of what I've learned over the years. This isn't all the nuances. This isn't all the answers. There's no way in two sermons that are about 30 minutes each that you can really get into all the answers of everything. This is a very distilled message. But let's look at what this passage is saying. So it begins with the Pharisees kind of asking Jesus a bit of a thought experiment. Now, you've got to understand something about the Pharisees. So this first part here. They test him by asking him this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Something about the Pharisees that even continues today with Orthodox Jews or your more you know, conservative Jews like the Hasidic Jews is that the people, the men in particular, like to get into the Torah and into the Talmud and into the Mishnah and just discuss, 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 discuss. And to find, and, and for a rabbi to kind of find different ways to interpret the Torah is kind of considered a bit of an art form. It's, it's similar to the way how Germans kind of approach beer. You know, beer in Germany can only be made from a handful of ingredients by law, or else you can't call it beer. This is what I'm told. If, if I'm saying something wrong, then, then uh, just forgive me. But I'm told there's about five ingredients that Germans are allowed to use to make beer. But, without, but, but by using only this handful of ingredients, there are hundreds of beers in Germany, right? And everyone in their region thinks their beer is the best. And not just that it's best and, and everything is, eh, but ours is the best. A lot of times it's the best and everything else is complete garbage. Ours is the best. And if you really want to run, 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 run into it, go to the Altstadt in Dusseldorf and order a Kolsch and see what the, happens. You'll get told a lot of times by the, the bartender, we don't serve that here. We don't serve that. We serve true beer, which is alt. And if you go to Cologne and you say you want an alt, I had a guy... He was joking, but he goes, I'm going to break every finger on your hand <laughs> if I were to grab that glass of alt because the only true beer is Kolsch. But it all comes from the same ingredients, the same handful of ingredients. It's really kind of amazing. Well, that's a bit like how the Orthodox and the Pharisees, Pharisees then and, and today's Orthodox Jews are kind of descendants of the Pharisees. This is how they approach Scripture. You only have the law of Moses. But within this law, there's all these different interpretations and, and ways to apply things. And people would kind of focus on a particular rabbi, not just at 
not just that rabbi, that rabbi and then everyone else is okay, but very much the similar way. This is the rabbi and everyone else is a heretic. Everyone else is wrong. And if you go to Israel, you'll find the people dressed in Orthodox, they'll have different types of hats. They're all black, but some are fuzzy. Some are, some are kind of, you know, like a little bit of a cowboy hat with a flat brim. Some are, they're all different types of hats. And the different types of hats is the different group of Orthodox that they are. And that's the rabbi they follow. They identify in this way. And they think the other Orthodox aren't just a little bit wrong. They think they're heretics. So this is kind of where Jesus is being approached. They're asking him this question because in the time of Jesus, there was two main schools of thought that were in the, the stream about marriage and divorce. And one said, one rabbi, using the law of Moses, said that a man can divorce his wife for any and every reason. If she displeases him in any way, and they even go on to use a specific example of if she burns his food while she's cooking dinner for him, which she's expected to do, he can divorce her because she's property. And so this is this question when they ask him for any and every reason. This is a bit of a landmine in there because they're, they're very careful in the way they ask this. And, and it's important to understand the way they phrase the question is because there's these two schools of thought. One, you can divorce them for any reason at all. And then there was a school of thought that really comes out of, the, of Malachi, the later Old Testament there, that no, you can't divorce for any and every reason. The reasons for divorce are very, very narrow. And this also comes from this, a, a different rabbi using the same law of Moses. So they kind of want to see where Jesus is at when they ask him this question. It's not just a question about divorce. It's also a question to try to figure out what school of thought does Jesus align himself with. But what's interesting is how Jesus answers it. He doesn't answer it by using the law. Instead, what Jesus does when he answers this question, he goes back to the heart and the intention of God. He, just, he ignores the law of Moses completely. He doesn't say the law says this or the law says that. Look what he says. He goes back into the heart intention and the intention of God. Haven't you read? He replied that in the beginning the Creator made them male and female. He said, for this reason man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus' answer to this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason, is clearly no. It is not lawful just to divorce her for any and every reason. And he doesn't, again, it doesn't appeal. He doesn't appeal to the law. He appeals to the heart of God. And he reminds the Pharisees that humanity before they were fallen, was designed as two sexes, and they were mandated to come together and form a, a union, a union that was insoluble. And this union was not just primarily sexual, but when he talks about the two becoming one flesh, it's almost as if the imagery is two bodies joining, bone joining bone, sinew joining sinew, muscle joining muscle. There's a oneness there that is indistinguishable. And that to therefore tear apart this union once it has become one causes just a, a horrific injury to the person. If you can imagine if a person had become two, become one, and then you tear them apart, the blood, the gore, the pain, he, in a spiritual and emotional sense, this is what happens. But the Pharisees want to stick with the law. 
They're not, they're not happy with Jesus' answer there. So they come back with Moses again. So where Jesus responds from the heart of God, they come back again with Moses. And they say, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And again, you have to look carefully at how they ask this question because the question implies that the law of Moses commands divorce. Commands that a wife give his certificate and send her away. And Jesus again comes back. He's, you know, Jesus is, is well, he's God in the flesh, so he's clever. And he's not going to get tripped up by these arguments. He understands what they're trying to subtly do, that, that not only is divorce under the law of Moses considered okay, it's even in a way, if it's done properly, considered an act of righteousness. Why does Moses command that we do this? We need to keep the command by doing this. And Jesus is like, listen, you guys, you're being intentionally ignorant. It's basically what he says to him, because he says this, listen, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. And he's kind of saying this to the Pharisees too, and you guys' hearts are hard if you're asking me these questions like this. And then he goes back again. He hearkens back to Genesis, but it wasn't that way from the beginning. So what he's, what he's referring to here is that in the Old Testament, women didn't have, uh, when it came to testimony between a man and a woman, a man's word completely overshadowed a woman's word. Not, I don't agree with this. That's the way it was. So what would often happen is that if a man divorced his wife, which back then wasn't that hard, he just said, I divorce you three times and she's done, which is still... Uh, the way it happens in Islam today, that if she's tossed out of the house and then ends up with another guy, she could then be accused of adultery by the man that tossed her out. And if it's her word against his word, his word's going to win, and she will be executed for adultery. So Moses said to these unscrupulous men, if you're going to divorce your wife, you need to give her a certificate of divorce so that she can show and prove that you tossed her out and that you can't accuse her of adultery, which will then lead to her being killed. So this idea of giving a certificate of divorce was a concession in order to protect the women from men then claiming that they had been abandoned and that their wife had committed adultery. But this was never a desire of God. And Jesus says as much. It was not this way from the beginning. It was never the intention of God, certainly to command divorce. God doesn't command it. And he doesn't really even want to allow it. This was a concession to protect the lives of women from the sin of their husbands. But then Jesus comes down and he says, this is how it is, man. I tell you the truth. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. And if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, which we'll look at next week, he, he closes up this loophole even tighter where he says, not only is the, the man who marries another woman commits adultery, but then the a person that marries that divorced woman also commits adultery and she's an adulteress. Everyone involved in the remarriage part is an adulterer. And his disciples freak. His disciples say this is a situation where a husband and wife is better not to marry. It's kind of a funny reaction, you know? 
I mean, if Jesus had said this uh, to me and I said, uh, I responded like this, it's better not to marry, Cindy would be pretty upset with me. She'd say, what? You need to have the, the, the escape hatch? You know, she would be pretty ticked off. And I don't know if the disciples meant this as kind of a humorous thing, like, oh, my goodness, if this is the way it is, it's better not to marry. Or if they were really serious. I don't know how they, how they said that because we can't hear the tone. But Jesus, interestingly, takes this very seriously. He doesn't take it as a joke. And, it, and, and because he doesn't take it as a joke, all of a sudden the conversation takes a left turn into this place of being single and being a eunuch. And Jesus says, not everyone can accept this word. And I think the word that he's talking about there is the word that it's, it's better not to marry. He says, but only to those whom it's been given. For some are eunuchs because they're born that way and others are made that way by men. Eunuchs are people that... Uh, boy, how do you say this from the pulpit? <laughs> do you all know what a eunuch is? Okay, they've been castrated or something like that. They've made, in, it's not possible for them to, you know. Anywho. So he says, you know, uh, some are eunuchs because they're born that way. Yeah. Others are made that way by men. Others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. And the one who should accept this should accept it. So he goes from divorce to all of a sudden talking about living life as a single person. And this is the only time he really addresses living life as a single person. The Apostle Paul then picks up on it in, in 1 Corinthians, but we won't get there today. But it's interesting that how, how Jesus, how the conversations just come whoop, and that there. So what is he teaching here? Well, first... To understand Jesus' teaching of divorce, we have to understand what he's teaching about marriage in this passage. Because actually this passage talks a lot about marriage. And the first thing that he teaches is that he holds a very high view of what it means to be a human being created in God's image. Jesus immediately goes back when he's asked this question of a divorce. He goes back into what it means to be a human being. He steps way back to what the intention was when God created humanity. And he quotes Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And Jesus has the whole of Scripture he can quote. So I think it's significant what he chooses. And what he chooses to say comes from this passage which talks about the creation of humanity, which says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is sort of a poetic way of saying God created humanity, in the image of God, God created humanity. Male and female, he created humanity. So, it's, so it's, a, it's a very high view of what it means to be a man. It's a very high view of what it means to be a woman. Both are created in the image of God. And together they make up the image of God. Which is kind of strange because when he talks about being single, he's like, being single is great. And yet he talks about at the same time that man and woman together in marriage in this relationship, make up the image of God. And then after this passage, he then quotes another one out of Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 through 25, which says this, Then the Lord made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is, a, this is an intriguing passage that Jesus calls upon. 
because he calls upon a passage that talks about the creation of woman coming from the body of the, of the man, and yet, even though they are physically, she's physically drawn from him, then they come back around together and join as one. So in this passage, you have this interesting thing where, where the woman is drawn from the man, and then together they come back to form a oneness that is an illustration of what it means to be created in the very image of God, a oneness of heart, soul, and mind. And it starts from oneness, then there's a creation of, of separateness, and then there comes back a oneness in a different kind of way. It's, there's some, there's, it's a deep, deep little dive Jesus does here into what it means to be human beings, male and female. And I want to say this, this next part slowly because this is important to understand where Jesus is coming from. This kind of pre-sin, so this is pre-fall, this kind of pre-sin perfection of compatibility and love is the new kingdom model that Jesus wants for those who are part of the kingdom of God. So remember, Jesus has redefined stuff all the time. You've heard it said, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute. You've heard it said, you know, uh, you know, if a man like, you know, is your, takes your coat, you know, I tell you, give him your, your sh his shirt as well, and all this. He redefines the law. If you go through the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew, which we did several months ago, he's constantly redefining things. And here he reminds us, not so much of a redefinition, but of the original definition. That before sin, there was this perfection of compatibility and love. That's what God wanted to create between male and female. This is why it is a precious thing in the eyes of God. And for those who are in the, re, the new kingdom of God, those who have been born again in Christ, who have been get, uh, credited the righteousness of Christ, he wants us to have this kind of pre-sin perfection of compatibility and love in our relationships of marriage. Now, I've been married over 30 years. I understand that we don't walk in this place all the time. I understand we don't walk in this place probably most of the time. But there needs to be some time in a Christian's life where they understand that their relationship with their spouse is this. This is what God wants from us. He wants us to have this perfection of compatibility and love. And wouldn't we love to have that too? And Jesus, I think, would say, you can have that. If you die to self and you live in the Spirit of God, you take yourself out of the picture. That's why death to self is so important on every level of our spiritual life. That we can then be living in the Spirit of God and live in this place of compatibility and love. And this high view of marriage is the metaphor that Paul uses when he talks about marriage. Later on, the Apostle Paul does this whole thing. He talks about how a man should relate to his wife. He should love his wife. And, and then the wife is to respect her husband and all this. And he talks about this whole thing. And at the very end, he says, well, I'm talking about the church. And when you read that passage, if you're not familiar with it, we can, well, I can, if you want to, I can send it to you. At the, you're reading this passage. It's at the end of it that, I've read this passage, I don't know how many times now. I still am surprised at the conclusion he comes to me. He says, oh, I'm talking about the church, of course. Because it seems the whole time he seems like, you're talking about a marriage. What do you mean you're talking about the church? But it's this high view here. Because what Christianity does then, what Christ does, is he redefines things. He, he goes to this old kind of 
kind of initial definition of marriage, but then the Apostle Paul reminds us that, you know what? Marriage has been redefined by Christianity to be an illustration of God's love for the church and the church's love for God, or Christ's love for the church, the church's love for Christ. And this deep metaphor and this, this redefinition of marriage illustrating Christ's love for the church and the church's love for Christ is why within the church... This relationship between Christians, because as Christians, we illustrate this to the world around us in our marriages. This is why these marriages can't be broken for simple or selfish reasons. The only reason that can be broke, a complete break, is a break in that marital trust, marital unfaithfulness. And what marital unfaithfulness is kind of compared to is idolatry. Because idolatry in the Old Testament was the thing that broke the relationship between God and Israel. It wasn't sin. It wasn't when Israel was just kind of being, you know, kind of doofuses or going to war when they're not supposed to go to war. It was when they committed idolatry, when they began to worship other gods. And throughout the Old Testament, idolatry of Israel is compared to adultery in relationship. The whole book of Hosea is kind of about that. And so Jesus says the only thing that can break this new kingdom relationship is basically idolatry within the marriage, which we would call adultery, because adultery is usually a very selfish, self-centered, deceptive sin, and it breaks relationship. And his disciples understood what Jesus was saying, probably like most of us understand what Jesus is saying here, and they went, whoa. If that's the case, it's better for, you know, if you don't have that escape hatch, I mean, if we are going to be held to this high accountability as Christians... Then it's better not to marry at all. And then Jesus doesn't, he doesn't laugh at that. He goes, well, not too many people can live that kind of life. Some can because they're born that way. Some can because they were made that way. Some do choose for spiritual reasons to live a life of singleness, but not too many can. And that's where this, this particular passage ends. So can a person divorce for any and every reason? No. Jesus makes it clear that marital unfaithfulness is the reason. But this leaves us with a lot of questions, doesn't it? And so these are the questions we're going to ask next week. And these, this, these are the two main ones I'm going to ask. Here's the part. We redefine marriage as a living illustration. Here are the questions I've had to struggle with for over 30 years, and some of you probably have too. We're not going to answer these today, but these are what I'm going to look into next week. Where does grace and forgiveness fit in to this whole thing? And under what circumstances can one move on with life without divorce or having this thing hang over you? Because it seems that one is more easily forgiven of murder than they are of divorce. And then the question is, while it's clear what Jesus means by marital unfaithfulness, we all know what he's talking about there, as the only legitimate reason for divorce, is there also a sense of marital unfaithfulness if a spouse is, for example, physically abusive? Or do we just stand by while a sister is getting beat up in a marriage relationship and we go, well, sorry, you're stuck in that for the rest of your life because unless he commits adultery, you can't get out of it. And so she just gets beat up all the time. Or what about just being beat up emotionally? The mental abuse that often goes on in abusive relationships, spiritual abuse, do we just stand by? What do we do? Is that a sense of marital unfaithfulness? 
What if other lives are wounded or potentially at risk? Like the children. Do we just go, too bad? And if there are other reasons for divorce, then what are they and when do we come to the threshold so that we don't end up like the rest of the world, which is to get divorced for any and every reason? If there are other reasons, and in my opinion, I'll just tell you right up front, abuse is one of them, but where does that threshold end? Because you know how we are as human beings. We can reason anything out. So where is that? And I think if we can answer these two questions, then this will go a long way to answering a lot of the other questions that float around there. But it's not going to be easy and it's going to be hard and we don't have time to get to it today. And if this has been a painful sermon for some of you, uh, you know, certainly uh, that, I don't intend to hurt anyone. I tend to just, this is what the Bible says. But tomorrow, next week, though, we will look at these questions and we'll look at them thoroughly because I think they're important questions that we ask. Because, again, this is a topic which has affected many of us. But a takeaway I want you to have, though, for those of you who are in, your relate, or are in marriage relationships or who may be one day in marriage relationships, is to understand what Christ wants for you in that relationship. He wants this relationship to have that pre-sin, you know, compatibility, love, that isn't, and when I say pre-sin, that means it's not affected by selfishness. It's not affected by fear. It's not affected by suspicion. It's not affected by uh, you know, all the different things that come into marriages and tend to break them up. And again, over the 20-some years I've been pastoring, unfortunately, I've seen lots of different things that come in and break up marriages. So I have to tell you, they all kind of boil down to two or three things most of the time. But he wants that for us. He wants that deep place of love for us. And I also want to tell folks, if you have been married, uh, divorced and you're remarried right now, before you, you assume that I'm saying you're all living as adulterers and adulteresses, let's wait till next week. And then we'll take a look at some stuff. And then you can reach conclusions and we can chat. And understand, this has been an issue that's gone on ever since humanity's been around. It's, it's addressed in the Old Testament. It's addressed in the New Testament. It's been addressed in literally hundreds of books, as I've said. I've only read about a dozen of those books over the years. I'm distilling down to you in a very quick way a lot of different nuances. And if you're in a place of turmoil after this and you need to talk, then we can talk. But if you're kind of in a place of, well, we'll see where this goes next week, then we'll might have to talk. That's fine, too. But I just want anyone to know there's no judgment or anger or like shaking a fist at anyone here because no one goes, no one gets married choose, you know, with the plan of getting divorced. I mean, I, guess, I suppose there's some that might, but no Christian gets married with the plan that I'm going to get divorced in three years. It's the tragedy of it, and it's the hurt of it. All right? <laughs> I to, I'm totally leaving you hanging, but we only got so much time. All right? So let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time, and thank you for your word. And Lord, there are times your word is very, very challenging. There's time, it's always challenging. There's times it's really, really challenging, especially when it starts getting into places in our lives which touch our lives very specific, specifically. And uh, this is one of them, this area of, of divorce. So many of us have had experience with it, even personally or uh, relatives or close friends that have been in, uh, affected by it. And Lord, we just pray that as we walk through this, we can hear your truth along with your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.